Amy Jill Levine is a brilliant scholar who teaches New Testament at Vanderbilt Divinity School in Nashville. She's a great writer. She's got a wonderful sense of humor. So she is self-described as being a Yankee Jewish feminist teaching New Testament at a largely Christian school in the buckle of the Bible Belt. One of her areas of expertise is the parables of Jesus. So when I read that this was what was on the docket, this was what was on the plate for this Sunday morning, and I was the preacher, when I read it, I went to Amy Jill Levine. And she's written very little about this strange parable from Jesus. And her conclusion, it's in one footnote, is this. This parable defies a fully satisfactory explanation. (laughs) That's both helpful and unhelpful. What is very helpful, though, is that the title of her book about Jesus' parables, and the title is Short Stories. And that's exactly right. What we're dealing with, first and foremost, are short stories. What we're dealing with, first and foremost, are stories, not allegories. Allegories are those, those quick moves with some stories that we make to get to the moral, to get to the meaning. And we can get there sometimes so quickly that we can gut the allegory of any meaning and color and narrative and twists and turns and all of that because it's got a point. Do this, don't do that. Parables are largely not like that at all. They really are short stories. And they give us something of the mind and the imagination of Jesus as a storyteller. So, let's start with the beginning of the story, not the moral at the end and all that ensuing confusion. At the very beginning, at the most basic literal level, this is just simply a story about a guy who knows he's about to lose his job. That's it. He knows he's about to lose his job. Now, some Bibles, if you look at them, they give um, a title to this whole section, and they call him the dishonest manager or the dishonest steward. But that's not who he is at first. At first, at the beginning of the story, he's just one thing. He's a guy who knows he's about to lose his job, and he's worried about it. Deeply, deeply worried about it. There's a poet and a college professor whom I love a lot named Stephen Dunn. And he tells his would-be poets in this creative writing class, this is where your poem is found. Your poem is found in one place and one place only. It's the moment that you have surprised or startled yourself. That's where the poem begins. Discard everything else that becomes before that and start there. Now, this manager is far from a poet, but that's where he's beginning. He startled himself. The first realization is that he's going to lose his job. And that, if that were not big enough, he comes to this deeper moment of self-awareness when he says, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. That's where it begins for this person. That's where he's he's coming to consciousness when he realizes what he is up against. If this were a movie, I would put the, the soundtrack right now would be the old blues standard, Worried Man Blues. This man is worried. And he should be 
because he's smart and savvy. He can't dig anymore. I don't want to stand on that street corner and bet. I can't do that. I can't do that. At this moment, the, the, the guy who's about to lose his job comes alive as, as a human being and as somebody who's relatable. And at this moment in the parable, as parables when they make their, their kind of best turn maybe, becomes an invitation to think about our own lives and even kind of project onto him some of our own stuff and what we really feel and think about if we were faced with the same thing. There's a, another scholar in Texas. Her name is Brene Brown. Um, she's also an Episcopalian. You may have come across her. I think she did. I'm not certain. And I don't know why I'm telling you this if I'm not certain I'm in the pulpit. But I think she did an interview with Oprah. And a lot of Brene Brown's work is on what she calls the profound distinction between guilt and shame. Between guilt and shame. Now this guy who's about to lose his job says, I'm too ashamed to beg. And what you need to know is it's the only moment in the whole New Testament that that word ashamed is used. So when he says that, when Jesus says that, that word just sings through the air. And and it's a haunting melody. What Bray Brown says about the difference between guilt and fear is this. She says, guilt is ultimately a good thing. Anybody who's a human being should feel guilty and should feel guilty regularly. It's when we realize that something we have done or said or perhaps planned to do is not in keeping with our ultimate values. And therefore, we feel this ping of guilt within us. It's a part of being human. And it's helpful because it allows us to come up with a different strategy, not do what we did or not do what we were planning on doing. Shame, however, Brene Brown says, is not helpful because it's, it's debilitating to the human soul and psyche. She writes that it's the feeling, shame is the feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging Because something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. Makes us unworthy of connection. And shame, in that sense, is never, ever helpful because it's so debilitating. And it seems, and I am projecting, that that's what this guy who's about to lose his job is imagining will be the reality for himself for the rest of his life. I can't stand out there and beg. I'm too ashamed to do that. So, he does what he does. He comes up with a shrewd plan. He just simply goes to everyone who owes his master money and he reduces their bills. Because he believes that if he does lose his job, in a day or two or a couple of months from now, he can go to all those debtors and they will be in some kind of debt to him and they will take him in and he will not stand on that street corner and beg. And then Jesus or Luke or some editor summarizes the whole thing, turning it into an allegory with this moral. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. 
I much prefer Amy Joel Levine's summary and conclusion to that one. This parable resists any satisfactory conclusion. What does this story tell us about the storyteller? I actually think a lot, a whole lot. I think it's fascinating that Jesus, who is the savior of the cosmos, told these stories. You know, I would have thought that would have been a little bit of a distraction for Jesus. You know, if you've got to save the cosmos, why are you paying attention to this guy? Why are you paying attention to all these things that we feel and go through in life? But just the opposite. And matter of fact, Mark tells us that the way Jesus taught was in and through these short stories, these parables. He had this, this, and he seemed to enjoy them. He loved these stories, and they just brought so much color to what he was about. And I think what they show us that's just so powerful is, you know how we just glibly say, you know, Jesus loves us, or God in Christ loves you. I've said that, you know, for however long I've been doing this. But it gives so much color that Christ told these kinds of stories because it means that Christ really knows us before Christ loves us. Christ really knows us from the inside, you might say, and seem to just notice all of the thousands of things and the twists and turns in our lives that mean so much to us and how our most wonderful and complex emotions get tied to things like success and failure. To go back just in one chapter, Luke 15, how finding something that was lost can just fill our heart with incredible joy. Finding a coin that was lost, finding a child that was lost can bring just incredible joy. And so too the opposite. When we don't find what we've lost and we know we'll never recover it again and all of the darker emotions that come to us in those real points in our lives where we don't know what's up ahead and when we try to imagine what's up ahead, we don't want to do that. I'm too ashamed to beg and I'm not strong enough to dig. I think it shows us that Christ knows us from the inside And even that Christ had a sense of humor, appreciated the absurdity of what we face, all of that. And I think these parables ultimately give incredible color to the parable that is, the the great parable that is Jesus' own life. The cross, which is not just about Jesus, but in light of stories like this, is this, this event, this mystery that illuminates all of human suffering, all of human absurdity, not just Jesus's, but all of it, in any time and in any place. And ultimately, that greater parable of resurrection, which is this incredible mystery that we can't explain, but that does have this existential power that tells us that shame will never get the last word, failure will never get the last word, God cr- prompt crosses God's own heart and promises that death, violence, evil, failure, shame, all of that will never ever get the last word. In other words, God promises in the parable of Jesus' own life that God, no matter what we do or don't do, 
that God will always be our friends. We don't have to cook the books for that to happen.